Hello and welcome to another episode of A Living Loss. I'm Julia Samuel and I'm very excited to share another brilliant conversation that I had with you. Before I introduce my guest, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of you for your messages about both the book and the podcast. I'm so touched by your kind words and pleased that the work we've been doing has been useful and supportive for you. Please do continue to share your messages in the comment section of your podcast app. I really love to read them. Now for my guest. I have had the pleasure of being interviewed by him a number of times, but now the tables have turned and I am going to have the chance to understand him a little better. And through that, I think you will too. He's been on our TV screens almost every night, giving us the news through the good and the bad times and giving us really important information. From seeing him on the TV, we would have no idea of the struggles that he's been through or the work that he's had to do to manage them. I'm enormously touched by his openness and honesty in sharing what he's been through with us on the podcast today. So today's guest on A Living Loss is the wonderful Tom Bradby. You've interviewed me, but I've never interviewed you, so it's a it's a reverse role. Well, here we are. The tables are turned. What can possibly go wrong? <laughs> Quite a lot in this day and age. Well, yes, yes. I'm always... Uh, I'm always nervous when the tables are turned. You know, journalists are so good to, to well, sometimes not so good, but at least used to asking the questions. It's always a little awkward when it's turned around. So we're not necessarily on comfortable ground, but hey, I'll do my best. Well, I'm very um, touched that you've agreed. And in fact, it's the same for me. So I'm used to asking questions. So this is my familiar spot. But when I'm interviewed, I actually really don't like it that much either. So I know what you mean. But can I, I'm going to introduce you. So um, I'm thrilled, Tom Bradby, that you're here. And you're a best-selling novelist, screenwriter and journalist. Tom is the current host of ITV's News at 10. After just a year on the job, he was named Network Presenter of the Year by the Royal Television Society. That's amazing, after a year. Unbelievable. He's now been with ITN for almost 30 years there's somebody who likes change and, <laughs> and was ITV's Ireland correspondent reporting on the Northern Ireland peace process and IRA ceasefire. As ITV's Asia correspondent, he was shot. Seriously, you were shot yeah, um, so and injured. No, that, but have you, and you've got a shot mark in your... Where were you shot? Got a dirty, great, large uh, bit of my lower right leg missing um, where they... It was a rocket flare that went sort of through the middle of my lower right leg. So they did quite a lot of cutting out. So my leg's never been quite the same again. So I, the boring bit is, well, the good bit is we all, we all go on these battlefield training courses. So the interesting thing is that when you, you get sh the, the, the advantage, well, there are lots of advantages of that, but one of them is that you very quickly sort of are making an assessment of the damage, even though you're in a lot of pain. So I fairly quickly assessed that I wasn't going to die and the worst that would happen is I'd lose quite my leg. Bad, to be honest. Which is quite bad. And it was, you know, I'm not saying it wasn't traumatic, but it wasn't like, it wasn't traumatic in the way that something that might threaten your life 
would be. And I and I'm, I do make that distinction quite strongly. The slightly boring tail end is that I've had, you know, my right leg's never been quite the same again. And as somebody who likes to do a lot of sport, that's just been an aggravation. But, you know, wow. could have been worse. But, I mean, it's a, it's a proper gunshot wound. Um, which li- links to which puts me straight into your books on spies, but we'll get to that. So I'm going to finish introducing you. He's the author of eight brilliant thrillers. The first of which, Shadow Dancer, was adapted, which he adapted actually, into a film starring Clive Owen and Andrea Risborough, and screened at the Sundance Film Festival. In a career that spans three decades, both his writing and broadcasting have been consistently characterised by his palpable sense of integrity, great sensitivity and profound insight. Um, Let's stop the interview there. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, reading that, there's so much that's fascinating that I just want to ask you in relation to a living loss, in that there's sort of contradictions in some ways, in that what I term a living loss is that it's the endings of aspects of our lives that we may choose or we may not choose, but it isn't death, but is often experienced as grief. So, and it requires a kind of internal adjustment to kind of refine our new identity in this new version of ourselves, whether it's in a new relationship, in a new job, um, living in a new country. And what is impossible not to notice, as I said in the intro, is that Many things in your life are remarkably stable, that you've had a very stable and long marriage, 25 years. And very unusually in your profession, I think, and nowadays you've had the same employer, ITN, for 30 years. So is there something about navigating change that you resist? Or, I mean, what is that about? I mean, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so so this is a sort of pet theory that everyone is quite at liberty to say is nonsense. But I generally think that a lot of human beings are divided into two kind of camps. Those that quite like emotional complication, even if they don't necessarily admit it to themselves, and those who sort of prefer intellectual complication and really don't like emotional complication. So I had a very, very stable, loving upbringing, slightly unusual because I was an only child and my dad was always away because he was in the Navy. I mean, in a way we can't really imagine now, like literally always away. I mean, he would go away sometimes for a year. Uh, So it's quite hard to view that through the prism of where we are today because that's just so uncommon. But nevertheless, I had a very strong, powerful mother who was like this sort of life force force field behind me, really, which which was defined my upbringing. So I generally like emotional stability. I mean, I've been married for twenty seven years, very happily. I love my wife. We we we're pretty close with all three of our children, who are pretty close with each other. My leaving aside my brothers-in-law who are effectively brothers my best friends are pretty much all people I've known for years and years and years from you know one I knew from almost after I was born two of them best friends from school one from university so I I I, I, you know I've worked with as you say the same employer for 30 years slightly more than 30 years now and then if you look at my work the question I get more often is you know you know, man, why do you do so many things? Why are you constantly juggling so many things? And the answer, the only answer I can come up with is I just like 
intellectual stimulation, complicate not complication, maybe that's not quite the right word, but I'm quite easily bored and I really like different forms of intellectual stimulation and I can, for whatever peculiar reason, manage my journalism, a novel in my head, a screenplay I'm writing pretty much all at the same time. In fact, I, I, I always end up choosing that. So, the, the, but emotional complication, literally even the idea of it brings me out and welts. So um, that, I guess, probably gives you some insight into the choices I've made. It does, and it, I mean, the, the great message I get from it is that although your father was away um, for, you know, huge unimaginable stretches of the, of a, at a time, that your mum and him between you gave you very secure and stable love. And then that has played out in the secure and stable relationships in your life. And that is actually what predicts a kind of meaningful, healthy life. But I had a wondering about, if you'll go with my hypothesis. So, I mean, you called yourself an only child and that's pejorative in itself, you know, almost like one isn't enough. But I was wondering, it felt to me like you're living like the life of maybe three men, like three sons. You know, you've got three or four different jobs, screenwriter, novelist, broadcaster, journalist. And I kind of felt whether you're kind of in the living of your life, you're expanding yourself to, to live the lives of the siblings that you didn't have. Maybe. It's very peculiar being an only child. I wouldn't necessarily use it in a pejorative term or I'm not sure that I am using it as in the pejorative term but it is weird even though my mother even though I was a very gregarious child I went to boarding school at the age of seven I wanted to go to boarding school it, it, you know, it wasn't a, a trauma although my mother always says that you know the moment I turned up I wanted to come home again so may, maybe if, you, if one's looking at loss that was the first sort of glimmer of it but Can you see I, my head shaking, leaving yeah, home, yeah. going to boarding school at seven. That is a big loss. That is young. Can you remember your seven-year-old kids? How young they were? Yes, I can. I mean, we wouldn't have dreamt of doing it to that, you know, with them. But it, it was a, it was a different age. We lived yeah, yeah. two miles from the school. My mother taught tennis at the school, so it wasn't like I didn't see her. And I, you know, I was gregarious. Sport, as everyone knows, is very important in those schools, and you know I was fortunate in that that, that was always something I found easy. So I I sailed along pretty happily, I think, but that was definitely the first moment. But you know, when I wasn't at school, I was on my own a lot. It was just you are. I mean, part of I think the reason I'm always f filling my head with stories, or whenever I'm bored, I sort of go into creative mode is because what else are you going to do when you're sitting at home on your own I mean sure I had friends my mum was so good at getting me out and seeing my friends but by definition as an only child you spent a lot of time on your own and I use that time to create stories in my head I suppose and and to be your own playmate in some ways so it kind of fits so what I was the sort of track that I was thinking about your first loss, whether it was not having a sibling, whether it was going to boarding school at seven. And I'm interested what you think, if you think of it in the terms that I turn to, the living loss is, is a big sort of tumultuous change that isn't death, but is an experience of loss all the same. 
I think whatever the answer is, it probably would be through the prism of being an only child. So one of the things I do remember, and I don't particularly know from what age, is that I was aware that my mother had had two miscarriages before me. Oh, wow. And actually an ectopic pregnancy after me. I definitely remember creating two brothers in my head. Wow. In the story that I wrote for myself, I was definitely the youngest brother. And my two other brothers had quite clear characters and identities, although I think they shifted a bit over time. So I, I guess you, you could say that was an element of it. Going to boarding school, I think other people would probably view it as more of a big deal than I did. As I said, I think it was because it was close, because I was gregarious, because my mother taught at the school, albeit only kind of twice a week, but it meant that it wasn't like I didn't see her. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't feel that. And then after I'd been there about six months, my sort of best friend was another boy called Tom, who was also an only child. And one morning he woke up and said he had a terrible headache. And we said, well, you might want to go and see Matron. And I went down to breakfast and I can sort of vaguely remember him walking off down the corridor. And by that evening, he died of meningitis. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. And as a seven-year-old, my memory, my memory of it, I think, was n not being able to process, not being able to process it at all. Because, of course, in a boarding school, life goes on immediately. You know, you're, you, know you're, you go to lessons, you go to games, you go to dinner. And everyone was very sad. But at seven, I just, I'm not sure you process it. But what I, what I do vividly, vividly remember is the grief in his parents' faces. And, you know, he was their only son. He couldn't have any more kids. And the, and the impact it had on my mother which was a sort of longer term thing because my mum always tried really hard not to be you know I was quite a active physically at least risk-taking young boy you know I climbed to the tallest trees I tended to play sport particularly rugby as if you know I was <laughs> invincible from injury Superman yeah yeah and well stupidly is what I'm really saying but she tried to be very cool about that, but there was just a period where she, she wasn't, and I was very aware of that. So I suppose that would be my first complicated, somewhat nuanced, but quite visceral experience of loss. And I can sort of feel it like a shiver, as you tell me, because in some extent for your mum, she, she'd already experienced the death of a child, had two miscarriages. So when she saw that, a, and she probably thought she was in kind of safe ground, you know, I've got my live child now and he may be sporty and risk-taking, but, you know, children don't die really once they're, it's very rare. But when she saw that a seven-year-old, completely well in the morning, was dead by that evening, that must have terrified her in a way that she couldn't then not know that my son could die, the, the person I love most in the world. Well, also, it was quite spooky because he was also called Tom and he was also an only child. It, it was... Yes, the parallels 
I can't quite remember. And I always say he slept in the bed next to me. I can't actually remember that. But I mean, it was a dormitory of like eight boys. So if he if he wasn't, he was two beds away. So yeah, I think that definitely had an impact on her. Obviously, his death was incredibly sad, you know, and it had an impact on me. It must have done. And I remember it doing so. But I didn't honestly really know how to respond or deal with death. And but I but as I said, I just remember it most through the prism of the utter destruction, it, 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 the, the terrible, terrible grief of his parents. I vividly remember that, and the sort of impact it had on my mother. And yes, I think, you know, I think my mother was very worried something would happen to me, and she tried really hard to hide it, but didn't always succeed. And I imagine, as a journalist, you've seen many more images of that kind of devastation on people's faces and how that connects to you and that none of us, if we're with or looking at someone who is grieving or incredibly sad or traumatised, we experience it. It goes into our bodies. We, we're wired to respond. We're wired to pick that up that response. So I imagine, you know, you've been in dangerous places, um, seen, witnessed terrible things. That I imagine that has had an impact on you? I guess it probably has. Even in the earliest days in Northern Ireland, I can... People dying in terrorist explosions or terrorist acts. It was just so viscerally awful, of course. You know, just watching this random terrible act and the devastation it would wreak upon a family and seeing it in their faces and feeling it in their bodies. Yeah, it was awful. It was really awful. And there is an element of that. I think the other thing of being a journalist... You know, if I had to pick one thing out emotionally from my life, it definitely f- the f- fear of loss of someone I love has has been a really big factor all my life, and you know, ultimately, I think that's what drove me in you know much much later on into a into a breakdown and it's meltdown, whatever you want to call it. But it, it's it's quite hard when you're a journalist. Because one of the easy ways to get through life is to sort of have a, a bit of your brain that says, oh, well, it'll never happen to me. X terrible thing will never happen yeah, to yeah. me. That magical thinking. Death happens to other people. If I don't think about it, it's not going to happen. Exactly. But you were forced to face it every day. You, well, you're forced more precisely to face... You're dealing with people who never thought it would happen to them either. And it's very, very hard to... You know, there have definitely been pit periods not necessarily the ones I'm proudest of in my family, you know, my family life where I would be slightly consumed by fear X, you know, that someone's going to die in a car crash or whatever it happens to be that's impacted by something I've reported on or something I've seen. And I'm not, not sure that's a useful burden for your kids, certainly. And I mean, I've tried obviously to be a good dad as many ways as I can, but I'm not, I'm not sure that's the, that's the best thing. And, you know, we may come on to talk about it later, but what one of the things, you know, when I did have my sort of complete meltdown, the biggest thing at the bottom of the barrel was having to come to terms with death. You know, we're all going to die. Everyone we love is going to die. The only thing we don't know is in which order. And if you can't be at peace with that fact, you're going to drag a huge amount of anxiety through your life. And that's just the way it is. So in some ways, what I've understood from your kind of unconscious experience of death from the miscarriages before you were born, then your very primal experience of death of a 
a seven-year-old boy called Tom dying, kind of shaped and influenced you in relation to death, as all our experiences do, and kind of shadowed you to a point that in the end, I guess this is your biggest living loss, is when you 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 weren't functioning anymore. You had, I don't know what you term it, a breakdown or a breakthrough. or I mean, breakdowns are often breakthroughs. But it's a link and it's a fear. Yeah. It's a fear of death. I think, I mean, the other thing that I was thinking is that one of the questions you said um, in an interview is, in my youth, I looked for answers with a terrible urgency. I had to accept there's a vast amount we don't know. And that seems to link directly, like you're always trying to answer the question, like to have control, to make sense of things that fundamentally around death, we can never have control and we'll never fully have any answers for. Yes. I mean, talking about a living loss and to give a sense of context, maybe, I really, really wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I don't know from what age, probably, you know, maybe 18. Certainly by the time I'd been at university a year, I wanted to know, I want. I knew I wanted to be a journalist. The course I did in my last year at university was the CIA from the Second World War to the modern day. And so I was studying Vietnam and all these wars and situations that journalists who were still alive had covered. And, you know, I dreamed of being a reporter in Saigon covering all that. It seemed exciting. And it was the sort of intellectual bit of my personality really driving me. And it, you know, drove me out to Ireland. I was desperate to get out of uh, to Ireland as soon as I started at ITN. Effectively, it was a war. It was close at hand. It was politically, historically fascinating. And then after I got shot, for reasons maybe too long to relate now... My sort of time as a foreign correspondent came to an end. ITN wanted me to come home. I, I probably could have rebooted myself somewhere else, um, but I, I'd been shot. And Claude and I had an interesting reversal. Before I got shot, I would sometimes be sort of up all night before I was going somewhere dangerous and in absolute agonies because I'd be saying, you know, I can't justify going to take these risks because if I die, I'll leave you, you know, to bring up three kids alone and that's not fair and it's not fair on the kids. And she'd be like, but, you know, you, you, you're not, probably not going to die. You say you can do it safely. And we'd go round and round and round and that. And and then after I got shot, there was a bit of me that was like, well, I got shot and I survived. I mean, it's absolutely fine. And she's like, are you kidding me? You the, What? The whole point of these discussions was you said you could do it safely. And that's clearly not true. So, you know, so. I, I, can I can I pause you one second and add my my psych take on that, <laughs> which is that our belief system is informed by our experience, but the belief we make or the story we tell of our, tell ourselves is dependent on our per, kind of personality type. So, for you, not knowing is the most frightening thing. And so you, you fear what you don't know, and that can kind of haunt you and make you worried. But for you, once you've had an experience that I've had a life-threatening experience and I survived, that's your new kind of belief touchstone that I'm okay, I'm a survivor. I can, I can have this thing happen to me and I'm going to be okay. But Claude, your wife, had the reverse. <laughs> she had the absolute reverse take on it which is you know it just shows how different we are as human beings isn't it from the same event we can see it diametrically opposite exactly and I suppose 
like all partnerships that have endured, we just approach life from different angles. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's why we were drawn to each other in the first place. I mean, I'm sure it was. But, you know, there was a bit of me, and I can't deny it, that was just relieved that episode was over. You know, I wasn't going to go on taking risks anymore. And I was kind of in a way relieved. You know, I, sort of a bit of me still wanted to go on being a foreign correspondent, but a bit of me was relieved that I didn't have to kind of stress before going somewhere dangerous about yeah. whether I was doing the right thing by my family. And I think what that tells you is, you know, the intellectual and emotional pulls of my character or of anyone's character. And you can see it there, like pulling in totally opposite directions. Yeah. And in the and in the end, you know, I felt more comfortable further away from death and the possibility of it. And then that sort of. You know, the further away I am from the possibility of dying or losing someone I love, the better I felt. And then and then I sort of, you know, everything recedes. Occasionally, I'd worry about something to do with the children. But as you say, children are quite robust. You know, in Western societies, children dying young is relatively rare. You know, there's no reason particularly to worry. And then I sort of built and then my mother got cancer and I've sort of built up to her death. She wasn't particularly philosophical about going which I found very difficult she found it difficult to talk to my dad about that kind of level of intensity of emotion and it so I just I think I've said before that I felt like I was walking with her into the valley of death and then walking out alone and just the last sort of three weeks were just just so seismically awful I think you know in large part I didn't have any siblings to kind of be there with me and Claude was amazing but it's not quite the same thing and you know, I guess because of the intensity of a sort of mother-son relationship when their father's away a lot growing up, it just, it, you know, and I thought afterwards, I was, you know, I was grief-stricken for a while um, and foolishly I just went on, you know, working. I mean, I launched my discussion programme, The Agenda, the day after my mother died, which has to rank as about the most stupid thing I've that ever really done. really unbelievable. Um, and ITV would, des- you know, were like, please, delay, it's not a big deal. And I was like, no, no, she'd want the show to go on. I was like, oh, what an idiot. Anyway... You know, I then I then sort of push myself into the bottom of the barrel, meltdown, breakdown, whatever you want to call it, you know, three months off work with insomnia. And only only in the bottom of the barrel when I, you know, when I was off early, I would suddenly find myself sitting in churches. I mean, I'm not religious and I would be I'd I'd, I'd cycle for three hours and then realize after an hour I've been sitting in a, in a church for an hour. And it was like, Where? and I just sort of. I think I was drawing comfort from the other people who've wrestled with, you know, is losing someone the final goodbye? What is death? And I think that's, so I'm really going on here, but to, to refer to your no, point about what we don't know, I finally just let go, I think, of what we don't know. And that was just the biggest release, that it's okay to not know why we're here, to not know what happens next. And instead of that being an incredibly dark, threatening thing, I managed to make it a softer, well, anything could be possible thing. And at that moment, I started to recover quite That's so moving, quickly. isn't it? That you kind of went in, you know, your relationship with your mother must have been so deep and such a big bond, the two of you together, and being the only one being with her and the only one she probably wanted to be with her as she was dying would have had an enormous impact on you. And then going straight into work without having any chance to kind of grieve or process it. And 
you know, in my terms, pain is the agent of change. By allowing yourself to feel the pain of the grief is how you adapt. And it sounds like your body gave you signals and screamed at you, you have to feel the pain. You have to go down to the bottom of that barrel that you can't just keep going. You know, business is an anesthetic. It stops us feeling and it makes us feel purposeful. But it forced you to kind of face these fundamental existential questions of how you can live with what you don't know. And it sounds like you were once you had come to terms with the sort of paradox that I have to accept what I don't know and find a way of living at peace with that, then that freed you in some way. And is this your big, this, I would imagine this is your life-changing biggest living loss, the, the breakdown? Yeah. I mean, with my mother, you know, once I was a grown-up, I mean, probably really once I went to secondary school, public school, you know, inevitably all boys put a bit of distance between them and their mother. And, you know, I was close to my mum as an, you know, as an adult, but, you know, not, I mean, we were, you know, we might go weeks and weeks without speaking, you know, she got on really well with Claude, we were pretty close, but, you know, not, not really, you know, that close. So if you, if you'd said to me, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, all I'm saying is I don't, you know, I don't, we didn't have a, as adults, a sort of closer relationship than average, I, I, I don't think, or is yeah. it, if you'd met us, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. And I loved her and everything else, but yeah. you know, I had my own family and my own life and she had, you know, was doing stuff with my dad and everything else. But I think the truth of it is that sort of period naught to 10, the sort of intensity of it, being just the two of us so often you know I remember we my mum my dad was his ship was in the Mediterranean and my mum decided you know on Mediterranean patrol I think for eight months nine months and my mum decided I'm not going to sit at home in England I can travel to Gibraltar to get a married quarter and I at least if he comes into Gibraltar I might see him a couple of times so my mum later told me she saw him twice in seven months once for six days and once for three days and, you know, I can vividly remember traveling all the way through Europe, France, Spain by train to get to Gibraltar. I mean, it was a sort of really formative experience. And again, you know, inevitably just the two of us, you know, I started a new, this is just before I went to board. I started a new school there and, you know, we had this whole life. So I, you know, definitely as she came to the end, you know, she had been this force field behind me all my life. And as an adult male, I kind of didn't think I needed that anymore. But then when it's gone, that just, that just, you know, raised sort of fundamental questions. And I, and it brought me face to face with death for the first time, you know, the, yeah. the death of, you know, the loss of someone really close to you, it's unavoidable, then it's in your face, it's the end, it's dark, it's bleak, it's utterly brutal. And you're the next to die your own mortality yeah exactly somebody joked to me it's like being in a cinema where it says the end and you realize you're <laughs> in the front row <laughs> so there's, there's definitely there's definitely imitations of your own mortality you know further fear of losing someone else you love you know your partner your children you know that all bubbles up and I, I, mean, I did the worst thing possible which is to just bury myself in more work more challenge take on more and more things and the interesting thing is you talk about the sort of bodily side of it from the moment literally after the day after my mother died and launching that program, the agenda, I had terrible pains in my body, 
terrible neck ache, terrible stomach ache. I mean, I, I could spend t 10 dull minutes listing all the medical procedures I had in the next four years until I got to the point, you know, and I... So your body was crying out. It was shouting at you and you were batting it away like, no, stop. Exactly. Give Claude, me pills. And Claude was saying, go away. Give me pills. Give me another <laughs> procedure. No, it's nothing to do with that. And Claude was saying, do you think... I mean, do you think it could be connected? And I was like, no, no, it's no, fine. No, I've just no. been at my, I've been writing too much, you know. Um, and it's like, I have no pain at all in my body now. None. Wow. Um, you just think I carried all that around. And, and, and funnily enough, the only, the only time now I ever get a degree of kind of tension in my body is around the end of February when, and as Claude pointed out this year, you you can't be stupid enough not to recognise this is the moment your mother died, right? And I'm like, yeah, but it's nine years ago. And she's like, well, yeah, but, you know, your body's got some intrinsic... We say is the body remembers, the body holds the score. So that your body has an implicit, powerful body memory of weather and time and space, that busyness and denial and our kind of decision not to look at things can cut out. But the... The, it's, it's a version of the unconscious, if you like, is that it, it surges. You know, you smell February and it will put you... Because our senses go directly to our emotions and they can't be filtered by our thinking. So it forces you to kind of f see full on or F be aware. Funny enough, I, at one stage I asked my psychiatrist, Dr Pereira, to explain this to me. He said, well... He said, you know, you look at a flower, you know, or you look at plants, they take evasive action. You know, they, cells have memories. And it was the first time I'd ever thought about it like that. I thought, you know, something turns to the sun. That's a cell having a memory. And I realised, OK, but it, it's it's. I mean, I think we've discussed this before, but one of the most once you obviously if you have a meltdown, breakdown, whatever you want to call it, and you have to take three months off work because you've just simply stopped to sleep at all and you're not sleeping. And which must have been hell. That must have been a living hell. Well, when I when I talk to other people, which never I do quite a lot, I sometimes feel like I'm a one man helpline these days. But I when I talk to other people, you know, I really, really, you know, you realise what a reassure what reassurance needs to be given because you remember as if it you know as if it was yesterday what it was like to have no idea what's happening to you you know and i i didn't have so frightening yeah because you just think you're going mad and you can't understand what you know why have you got this crippling anxiety in your body and i you know, obviously, in retrospect, I've been dragging a lot of anxiety around for the four years between my mother's death and my breakdown. And, you know, my dad was in terrible shape physically and mentally. I was kind of, you know, propping him up constantly. Um, you know, and I loved him dearly. But, you know, that that took quite, you know, a strain. It's a big demand. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, it was my mum died just as that film you very kindly mentioned came out of Sundance it you know thankfully got really good reviews I was suddenly being offered lots of screenwriting work I was on the boards of charities I was doing this I was doing that I, I was asked to you know do the host ITV's election coverage I mean you know I was so asked much. to do news at 10 and we relaunched it in a totally different way which was not easy so I did 
I did load myself and it was it was unfortunate that my career was exploding in different directions at exactly the moment when I should have been basically taking it easy but in any event I doubt I would have had enough psychological self-knowledge to say no to things anyway and I, and I didn't I didn't ever have insomnia before but then just suddenly you know the anxiety that had built up in my body was just enough that I that my body couldn't shut down at night and it happened and it was total like not a wink I mean and sleep sleep deprivation is a torture isn't it I mean if you kind of looking back at yourself then and I definitely see when people get the support which I'm so glad that you did that a breakdown is the opportunity for a breakthrough that it is you know our chance to reboot recalibrate kind of learn about what isn't working so that we can live more in tune with who we are now and what's happened to us and allow all of that to come through our system and integrate it as part of our of who we are. What are the sort of big learnings do you think you've had from that that time? Letting go of everything you can't control. Letting go of fear of <laughs> Julia's arms punch the air. Yeah. I mean, you know, you spend you get yourself, you know, if you wanted to describe it in a sentence, you get yourself into that situation because you've spent a life wanting to control your destiny and once you accept that you can't in lots of very key ways and that there are just moments when you have to let stuff go everything gets easier and also fundamentally you never want to go back to that dark place again and you know you're never going to so i i, I find it quite interesting now that i have these self-defense mechanisms that just kick in it's like an auto automatic thing i'll find myself getting quite wound up about something mm. and then suddenly there's like a kick in it's like oh shit does it excuse my language does it matter yeah. really does it matter does it matter that much so you have a new little kind of um, auto cue if you like in your head so rather than the one that amplified your fear like looking seeking searching there's another one that's saying hang on take a breath slow down does this matter so it's the one that kind of grounds you to accept the things that you cannot change and to, to change the ones that you can yeah and you know we all have natural instincts. I mean, obviously the big one is fear of dying or fear of someone you 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 love, losing someone you love. And we've we've talked quite a bit about that. But you could build in loads of other little ones: fear of failure, fear of letting people down, fear of people thinking ill of you. These are all quite big. You know, for example, you take over News at Ten. You're a quite a lot more high profile. Not everyone likes you. <laughs> you know. How do you manage that? But can I just go back? I need. I just need to check that we've I've got from you is so the biggest thing is that you accept what you can't control and then are there other habits that go with that that you've developed like doing some five minute breathing or is it or is it just the main thing that little voice in your head saying does this really matter is that the main thing you mentioned earlier the body keeps the score and I actually read that book which I'm sure you'll be aware of the body keeps Bessel the score Vandercock. yeah I went on a course with him really for four days yes that was quite a revelation reading that book because you suddenly in the middle of my sort of breakdown when I was my three months off and I was feeling a bit better I said to Claude, I just, I just don't understand. You know, I do feel a bit mentally calmer, but by 11 o'clock every morning, my body is wound up so tight and I've got so much adrenaline, it's literally like I'm about to walk into a boxing ring. 
And I went to talk to Dr. Pereira about it. And that's when we had the conversation about your body's sort of learned response. Mm. And he suggested, you know, he said, you need to do meditation, you need to do yoga. So I sort of developed these, I suppose, my own I did a meditation course. I spent a lot of time on the Calm app. And I then and I then sort of developed my own kind of meditation that just works for me. And I developed my own yoga that is really about sort of breathing in a, you know, very slow rhythmic breathing in a way that that I discovered in all circumstances will bring down my body clock temp, you know. Takes you from fourth gear to first gear in five minutes. The magic of breathing. I mean, the magic <laughs> of breathing. And, and, you know, I find physically stretching at the same time kind of amplifies it. And, yeah, you know, breathing out longer than you breathe in and all that. And just like slow, you know, I listen to a, a particular playlist, which has now become quite triggering in that it automatically triggers a reverse, you know, yes. a wind down reaction. And you learn all these things. So I don't do that that often anymore because I don't need to because my 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 your homeostasis you're quite regulated yes and i'm quite low stress most of the time but if i if i feel it kicking in then then you know but it's kind of like you know i was mentioning that taking over news at 10 you know some newspaper will write something horrible about you some columnist will write a piece saying you know you're loathsome for the following reasons and you know you you, i would really hate that i i really do not like being loathed i i mean i don't know how you tolerate it well you you, i mean that's like 101 of what you can't control right yes you're never gonna have a you're never gonna have a position where everyone likes you you know you know that most people who read this stuff don't entirely take it seriously you know if that person is writing nasty things about you it's you know whether it's on social media or in a newspaper this probably says more about them than it says about you and i just don't really want to live my life like that anymore so i just don't you know worry about it or at least if I do and it's obviously the instinct doesn't go to get wound up um you know that's outrageous but this kind of thing kicks in where I just think oh shut the computer who cares whatever you know it doesn't matter and I think what's so powerful and I I think everyone listening can take from this is that in the same way that we can have bad habits that can in the end leave you lead you to insomnia that, you know, keep doing the same thing can wind you up to a terrible state. We can develop good habits, quite straightforward, not, I mean, completely free, short habits that have exactly the same effect. So that our bodies like habits, our body remembers and holds the score for good as well as bad. So when we create playlists, so that thing of senses, so when we hear something, it it um, triggers a response in our body. And if so, it's a playlist you associate with calm, with peace, with de-stressing. The minute you hear the first song on your playlist, the minute you do the sun salutation or you're sitting in um, some yoga um, pose, your body will go faster in response to wind you down than anything that you can tell yourself. So that the combination of the music, the movement and the um, response is a learned response that you can use. You'll be able to use that for the rest of your life. You'll be able to use it for every situation you find yourself in. And it's unbelievably powerful. And the thing I kind of don't get is how simple it is, how free it is. And it is much more used and known. I mean, I think that that we are learning and changing but also that I'd like it to be known more and used more. Well, there's a few things about that. One is that 
I totally agree with you, and it's incredibly important, and it's an important part of every re- recovery. That said, there are people I think all over the world, sun, you know, doing sun salutations and yoga and a million other things, and thinking they're getting better from their mental ailments. And all too often, I look at them or when I talk to them, and I think, well, you're not really because you're not tackling the fundamentals here. And the fundamentals yes. are, you just got to you've got to learn to let go of what you can't control and that's incredibly we all want to control our destiny we want to control how we're viewed by others we want to control a whole bunch of things about our lives and our passage through this earth and we just can't we can't and we've we've got to accept and I, you know i was obviously one of the, you know one of the aspects of having had a kind of total meltdown and very publicly and being off work for three months and everyone knowing about it. Did you did you feel ashamed? Was there a sense of shame or failure? Because you said you feared failure. Do you know what? I think the, my first reaction was so profoundly relief. Yeah, like few. To go and... ITV and ITN were amazing, I have to say. But to go and... One of the aspects of seeing a sort of top psychiatrist, and I'd love to come up, you know, in just a sec, talk about mental health provision. Yes, do. Somebody, you know, you're, you're opposite someone who has vast experience and very quickly does this thing. And I now look back on it and see sort of where he beca- he implants himself as a voice of authority in your head because he kind of has to to stand up to your to help you stand up to your anxious mind which is running riot and you trust him which is the essential i fairly you know very very quickly came to trust him because i i could you know i was not blind to how that i could clearly see he knew what he was doing and you know one of the things as you know that that process includes is something well, why why is that so important and you'd explain yeah but why does that matter so much and you'd explain so well yeah but what why so much and you know you could go on and on and then you think damn it, why does that matter? Why do I care what people think of me? Maybe I don't need to. And, you know, you, you go, you go, you know, somebody helps you to this sort of liberation. And I... Drill down. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of explain it to people afterwards, you know, like anxiety. And whatever your anxiety specialism is, and they're all different, you're all in the same cell block in that you've created this cage for yourself. And I found that as the process wore on, I felt like, okay, I can actually sort of see the door open in the chink of light, but I just can't get out. And then and then you gradually do get out, and then you're outside looking back on it. And Amazing. That's so moving that you're out looking back. I mean, that's an amazing thing that you did that. Well... What I most feel about it, and I don't mean this as any criticism of anyone, but I honestly think that one of my reflections looking back is, Lord, how could I have been so ignorant? You know as well as I do that when you have a you know, when you have a meltdown or breakdown, you're in such a bad state. You know, I was obviously signed off work for three months. You know, ITV and ITN, I can't tell you how amazing they were. And from the moment I called to say my Huge psychiatrist difference. just signed me off work for three months... I spoke to my editor, Rachel, and she was like, we totally understand there is no pressure. Be Go home. Go, go home. home. Be off as long as you need. We will support you 100% all the way. In fact, it makes me feel quite emotional talking about it. They were just so amazing yeah. about it. And, and yeah, I did. Yeah, of course I felt ashamed, you know, as the relief wore off. I kind of and didn't really know what was wrong with me and all the rest of it. I did. And I started to worry, you know, will I lose everything? Will I lose my job? Will I lose my house? You know, in my worst moments, will I lose my family? I went through all those things. But, you know, but I did get to the other side. And once I was on the other side, you know, once you're sort of three months in, you know, the recovery 
really grew pace and I sort of grew stronger and stronger and I would say now psychologically much stronger than I've ever been in my life and amazing but most striking to me is my own psychological ignorance about the brain about the mind about how they it interacts with the body and about myself because obviously part of recovery is learning about yourself why do you care about this and that and you know we went into incredible detail about my background and why this mattered to me so much and why that mattered to me so much and where it came from and all the rest of it and I think in this country, and I'm not criticising anyone, I want to make that clear, but just it's a developmental thing about the span of humanity, is that w mental health provision is like physical health provision in about 1870. And people say, oh, the stigma's gone, it's better. Well, I mean, you know... The parity, there is not parity of care. But, you know, means. you think of the care that I received, the expertise, the brilliance of it. You break your leg... The surgeon who treats you on the NHS is actually the same one you can go and see privately. Yeah, yeah. You need mental health provision on the NHS. And, you know, we as a country, you know, I feel like we need to teach some of this stuff in school so people Definitely. instinctively the know The basics it. Of, of psychological health. And yeah. it's not, you know, it's this sort of idea that it's a bit touchy-feely and woke. I mean, I, honestly, that's just like the most aggravating, ridiculous. absurd, yeah. ridiculous thing possible. And, you know, we see poor mental health and you know once you sort of learn i mean you must find this you know you you just see it all around you you know you see some politicians and you think well you're just clearly not well you know <laughs> you you're, you're reacting to this in such an extreme way that's just not that's not the sign of good mental health no anyway i feel pretty passionately about it and i would love to kind of over time particularly on the learning in schools is something i would like to try and work out ways to help if i possibly could can I take us in a, a different direction? I was thinking about you reading the news in this last year and um, seeing every day the statistics and kind of living the pandemic. And one of the things I'm afraid to tell you that I've been telling people is that watching the news is contagious. So if you feel anxious, don't watch it, don't read it. I mean, just stay abreast of the basic headlines because... I mean, at the beginning, when I was watching the news, I got huge surges of anxiety. So I just had to um, stop watching it. Um, but also, one of the things you said is that why you wrote your first book is that you're fascinated by societies on the cusp of change. And it feels like the pandemic, leading up to the pandemic as well, but we are a society on the cusp of change. Um, and I don't know what... You think about that. There's a well. There's a lot in that, isn't there? Um, I I think. I suppose one thing I would say is the way I personally covered or did the news in the pandemic is unquestionably different from how it would have been if I hadn't had my meltdown and recovery really and mental you know education were you more sensitive what what was different i more clearly understood that this was a time of huge anxiety for people all over the country i therefore really really strongly felt i mean i, I would always hope that i'd been an you know a very empathetic person you know right back to, to northern mm. ireland i feel like that's the way my parents brought me up and i hope my journalism has always been sensitive and empathetic and that's always the way i've tried to conduct myself you know right back to the days when you were you know having to go out and see the 
families of victims in Northern Ireland and, you know, you had you were asking them, did they want to do an interview? And it was incredibly surprising. And actually, it was my that was my first interesting insight into human psychology is how often they, you would think, you know, you were always intruding and they just would never want to even see you. But it was amazing how often they did actually want to do an interview. And it took me a long time to work out that deaths were so common then that they actually wanted to sort of, by doing an interview on national television, it was saying what an extraordinary, terrible event had happened in their lives. And so there was, there was, there was some psychology underneath that. But I think it, all of that was supercharged by what happened to me when I was off for insomnia. And so I went into this, you know, some of my first sort of thoughts in the crisis is what a massive anxiety hit this was going. You know, we all want to feel that, you know, death, as I said earlier, is a long way away. It's in the distance. It's so in the mist, we're not thinking about it. And now it's like rammed right up into your face. And on top of that, you're losing, and this, I suppose, is very much a living loss. You're losing the life you knew, you know, all the things you might be seeing, friends, everything else, it's been taken away from you. And yes, for some people, and I, I do think there was a bit of a economic divide, obviously, the wealthier you are, you know, the more stable your family is, you know, we were at home here, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere, we have plenty of space, all our adult children were at home, there was lots of plot positives, I was deeply aware that for a lot of people, it was diabolically awful. And, and so I felt as, as the person presenting News at 10 and giving this news, A, you want to do it in the most empathetic way possible, understanding that this is making people very anxious. And the second thing is really to focus on good news when you have it, not to mislead people. But, you know, the va- it was clear the vaccines were coming from quite a long, you know, by certainly by June, July, September last year, October, August yeah. last year, I was convinced that we'd have vaccines before the end of the year. And, and, I, and I think, well, I would say internally in ITN, I pushed that narrative very hard because I said we need to be able to give people some hope here. And the hope is not false hope. You know, look, you know, no, talk no. to the scientists. It looks real. So, yes, I think the way I, I, I co- we cover, not we, but the way I approach the pandemic is different because of the mental health prism through which I inevitably saw it. And you did narrate it incredibly sensitively, I thought, and sort of powerfully. And it is fascinating how much even in the worst of times and that we need to face the worst of times and for this year as you say it is by no being by no means the same for everyone that there are people who have really suffered um in the most terrible way and who says you know there's a parallel pandemic with the coronavirus pandemic which is a mental health pandemic and i think we've only just begun to see the kind of outcome of that and i think that will you know, as we unlock, I'll see, I think we'll see much clearer evidence of what of what the cost has been psychologically. But within all of that, the thing that turns a life around is hope. We need hope. So choosing hope, and that doesn't deny the level of the, the um, difficulty or how serious it is, but we all need a little hope at the end of the tunnel. And for me, the vaccine, you know, that that really made a transformative difference for me. But when I could see that there was something that was going to find us a way through and that we would be able to see each other again, that was a massive game changer for me. I felt completely different. 
Well, I'll give you another example. At the start of this year, there were headlines after headlines and days after days of variants. The Kent variant, the Brazil, the Brazil variant, yeah. the South African variant. You know, this terrible threat. They were coming. They were going to change everything. They might put us all back to square one. And I kept on padding down to our science and health team, who've been brilliant throughout this crisis, Emily and Tom, and saying, right, listen, we can talk about this again. Is there any evidence that the vaccines aren't going to work on the variants. And they would say, well, we don't know, and we've got to be clear about that. But the signs are they should work probably to the extent of keeping you out of hospital, you know, or being seriously ill, which is the main, and certainly... It's the main thing. Yeah, which is the main thing. We don't know. We can't say for sure. And it, I kept on saying in meetings, can we just dial this down because we're scaring people again and we don't actually know, you know, th there's not necessarily any reason to... Yes, it may turn out one of the variants beats the vaccines, but most scientists seem to think that... We can tweak it. Yeah, that we, A, we can tweak it, and B, the vaccines will be a bit less effective against the variants. Maybe quite, you know, maybe you'll get it, you know, and you'll feel it, rather than not getting it, rather than not getting it at all or not feeling it. But the signs are it'll still keep you out of hospital and it should keep you from dying. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we have diseases. As long as it doesn't kill us or debilitate us for a long time, you know, that's life, I'm afraid. And to go back to Tom's truth, we can't control the things we can't control. Obviously, obviously, everyone wants to do everything possible to to stop anyone dying from anything. But you know, my point really about the variants was just that the signs are, it were, they were still going to stop people, the vaccines were still going to stop people dying even with the variants. And therefore, the fact that it's 45% effective instead of 95% effective, if it stops you dying, it stops you going to hospital... You know, that's an irritation, not a catastrophe, I suppose, is, is all I was trying to say internally. And do you think going forward, things will change that, you know, that's, that we're on the cusp of a societal change? Do you think it's... Well, we're in... There are so many... I find I don't post on social media these days because people have... You know, we're in the middle of a culture war. People have incredibly strong opinions about so many things. And you just think, you know, the people who know a lot about it tend to have quite nuanced opinions and, the, and then like you go out there and there's just like these incredibly violent opinions and I you know whether it's about American politics or whatever and I just think I just don't think that's taking humanity in a good direction I have to say and I find that the older I get the more nuanced my view of most things is uh, which is kind of at odds with the way the world's going I find that quite troubling at times I mean I completely agree with you I I my take for myself is the more I know makes me realise the more I don't know. And so I never feel certain. I mean, my job is not to feel certain. So it's to kind of travel in the unknown with someone, as it were, never with a kind of goal of, you know, directed. But I, I my biggest kind of sense is the lack of listening, that there's so much shouting and so many strong opinions and not enough listening. And that listening is transformative. If you really hear someone, it's very hard to have such a strong judgment about them <laughs> because you take in all the nuances, all the complexities, all the things that got them to be the way they are. And when you're up close and really listen to someone, you, you don't judge them anymore. You kind of feel for them, you know, whatever the behaviour, whatever's happened. And so, um, but standing back and shouting, I think, is... 
it hurts your soul as the person doing it. I, d- I mean, I think it hurts you as much as it really doesn't improve our, our kind of lives. Well, you know, you think when someone's abusing someone on social media, they're obviously saying something about themselves more than they are than the, about the other person. I mean, if anyone's ever upset about stuff that's said about them on social media, I do try to say to them that. Yeah, that's what it's about. Yeah. It's not about you. It's about it them. It is. It is. Yeah. Of Anyone it is. who has any knowledge of psychology would would tell you that. I mean, what what Jung said way back was what we most don't like about other people is what we most don't like about ourselves, and so we project our own self-loathing or whatever it is onto somebody else. The principal way I tend to have a public narrative now is through news at ten. And I spend a lot of time thinking about the tone of that. And, of course, there are moments and the programme has a bit of an edge because the government might be claiming X when Y is so obviously true, and that's part of our job. But generally speaking, I think all of us are trying to create a tone of empathy, understanding when things are sad or bad, humour wherever we can find it. Because I just think that's the biggest thing you can diffuse, you can do to diffuse sort of angriness and that we seem to be living in a world where everyone is more angry all the time in a in a really upsetting and quite tiresome way and the easiest way to diffuse it is to just inject a bit of humor into Completely. it you can't be angry and laugh at the same time i interrupted you no no it's you didn't that that's that's where i feel like the sweet spot for a program like news at 10 is empathetic understanding you know, edgy with the with the government or whoever in, is in a position of power when we need to be and questioning, but humorous where we can be because otherwise it's just, you know, it's just too much. Yeah. And, and in a way, you're describing yourself as well. I mean, we've come to the end of, for me, what has been a really fascinating conversation and I appreciate your honesty so much and the way you think so deeply. But it sounds that everything that you want for News at 10, which you're presenting, is also who you are. Like you want to be empathetic, you want to be sensitive, you want to question and push, you know, to the to the edges of, of what is really going on. But also connect with people through humour and laughter so that we can have a kind of moment of, of release so that it's not all kind of doom and gloom that's sort of charging into our, our screens at night. When I came back from being off work, because of the stuff we've discussed and then a sort of year passed and I I had my first novel in this particular series the trilogy that I'm writing Secret Service with with this character Kay and I you know contractually as you know you have to go out and publicize your novels and I sort of sat there and thought I mean it it's quite weird because to some extent in that novel which I wrote before my breakdown she's obviously on the edge of a breakdown as a character which I was I was sort of writing without the psychological awareness of that that's what I was doing which is a sort of your unconscious was writing for you my unconscious was writing for me so that's sort of interesting but I just decided I've really got two choices when I go out and publicize this book I can either wait and have the story of why I got in such a mess and what the mess was about dragged out of me by in you know 50 awkward encounters across the next three years or I can just be honest and hope it helps others so I'm not you know really it's just easier to be honest because you hope it will help others and it just stops you bottling up and honestly once you get to the point where 
you realize you don't control you know you don't control you you don't even control your own narrative i mean so many people go wrong because they they think they can control their own narrative and you just can't you can't i can't tell what some newspaper or somebody else is going to write about me and you know that kind of thing is just a toxicity in your own life so eventually you have to say oh, write what you want i don't care anyone who knows me forms a view that i care about anyone who doesn't know me honestly forget it if you if you like yeah. me that's great if you don't i'm really sorry but there's not much i can do about it you have to kind of let god and let go and that is a real liberation and it i feel very kind of empowered by hearing you finding that for yourself you know you achieved for for decades before you had your breakdown but it feels like now going forward you're going to be even stronger and more insightful that you've learned so much from it that it's kind of broadened you and expanded your insight which will you'll reap i'm sure in your writing your new books and i'm sorry we haven't talked about no no books, don't books worry, are I fantastic I they are about fantastic them in other places best-selling amazing books no i mean if you, it'd be sad if you didn't develop some insight after uh, such a sort of extreme level of putting yourself in the hole. So, as I said, ever since I, you know, this happened very publicly, and particularly since I then went on to talk about it reasonably openly afterwards, an extraordinary succession of people have come up to me to want to, you know, at one point it felt like everywhere we went, somebody would sidle up to me or sidle up to Claude and either, you know, talk obliquely or sometimes directly about themselves or their partner or one of their children. And Claude and I, you know, Claude and I have developed a discussion about it as we always, you know, debate afterwards. And usually we send them to person X or person Y. And the thing that just makes me so sad and I wish I, I could, do more is sometimes people will accept they're not well they'll acknowledge that and maybe the conversation starts obliquely or maybe it starts directly but either way you get them to the point where they accept they're not well and they just this is where people who say the mental the stigma around mental health has gone are just not correct and what i think it's weird and quite precise the stigma about talking about it has gone but the stigma of there is still, a, or not gone, but has lessened. But I think where the difficult thing is, is that it's very hard still, and there is still some stigma about someone saying, I'm putting up their hand and saying, I'm really, I'm not well, and I need to do something about it. And you you then need to go and accept and be open to the help, whatever, you, if you've got good help, but what that person is telling you. And, you know, you have to, I mean, I remember early on with Dr. You know, Dr. Pereira, I said, am I going to get better? And he says, I can't tell you that. It's up to you. I mean, I'll help you, but... And it's work. You have to do the work. Well, also, it's frightening because you think, well, how can you change your thoughts? The thoughts come into my head with such power. The fears come into my head with such power. How can I change that? That's just who I am. And who am I if I let them go? So it changes your identity, your version of yourself. You have to let one version of yourself... You know, we all have multiple identities and you have to let the one that's harming you have a voice, listen to it, listen to what it's telling you, pay attention and then shift your perspective so that you're giving yourself the information that supports you and allows you to be the full you, not the one from the sort of, you know, shitty committee or whatever it is that is giving you high levels of anxiety. But I say to people, 
you know, it could get worse before it gets better. If you open Pandora's box, it's going to be painful. And you will have to fundamentally rethink about how you approach the world. And that's, that's, not, that's really, really hard. And what makes me sad is I would say 70% of the people who come up to me and talk about it, even though they acknowledge they're not well, never really never really tackle it address it go, sometimes they go and then they shy away and they say oh i'm feeling a bit better i'm doing some yoga you know i'm seeing a therapist and you just you I, sometimes i try to explain to me but you're not tackling the fundamentals behind this and you'll feel a bit better but you'll never you'll never you know and i will be everlastingly grateful weird as it sounds that i had a meltdown or a breakdown because only by getting so bad did I force myself to to, to recalibrate and to lose that. You know, in my term of a living loss, you had to let that version die to let a new version of you grow. Yeah. Should we end at that point? I think we should end on the liberation. It's liberating. <laughs> Go it's ahead. Liberation. Tackle it. Do it. It's great on the <laughs> other side. I wish I could give you a hug, Tom. It's so no, no, lovely it's seeing you. It's very lovely to see you. Thank you so, Look so much. No, it was my pleasure. So with Tom, from when his mother died, he said he kept on going to the GP. He kept on having things wrong with him. It's his shoulder, it was his neck, or it was his leg. And they put their emotional pain into their body and they somatize it. And in some ways, I think that discredits what's really going on, which is that when, when we don't have a, a great enough awareness of what's going on in our minds, it's our mind and our body are completely interconnected. So everything our body experiences sends a message to our mind and everything our body, our mind says, sends a message to our body. So they're an interconnecting system that operate completely together. So, but if the, the mind isn't paying attention, the body will start sending signals to increasingly like, pay attention, something's wrong, watch out, something's going on. And so my kind of suggestion is, like, have you kept on having headaches? Are you not sleeping properly? Um, do you keep going to the doctor and the doctor not really being able to find something wrong with you? And if that is the case, kind of sit down with a partner or friend or a relation and begin to kind of look through, go back, like a like a photograph album through your life and sort of begin to have a look at like what, what was going on there, what was going on there and see if there's a point of something that's going on that your mind isn't paying attention to, that is in denial um, and that it needs, you need to allow it to be integrated now in your life. And, you know, we, as we develop, we mature and change. So. You know, what didn't matter when we were 15 because we were so busy getting on being a teenager, we might have to pay attention to when we're 25. And so it isn't behind us. We carry our baggage of our past with us. And sometimes it tells us much later on that we we need to um, pay attention to it. I have lots more wonderful guests coming up. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast today for free, wherever you get your podcasts. 
and the latest episodes will pop into your feed once they are released. Thanks again to my lovely guest, Tom Bradby, my producer, Sophie King at Move Science, and to you, of course, for listening. Until next time, take care.